What was it here, Sheriff? I don't know. Oh. Now that's aggravating. Sheriff? I'm still sweating. Oh, Sheriff! We just missed him! We gotta circulate this on radio. All right. Well, what do we circulate? Looking for a man who has recently drunk milk. This is Film Slub. Welcome to the show. So today we're talking about No Country for Old Men, the 2007 film based off the 2005 novel of the same name. And I wanted to start with this particular film for a couple of reasons. Um, Because one, by most accounts, this is a pretty fucking good movie. Um, Two, I think there's several ways to access this. Like, it's just rife with context and subtext, overtones, and there's just a lot of ways to get into this. And I think that's a pretty interesting draw for me. And three is because when I first saw this movie, I just kind of like started weeping at the end. And I think that the sign of like a really talented filmmaker is something that gets you on a gut level, like further than being intellectual or something that appeals to cinephiles, things that get you on a gut level is kind of what I'm looking for. So I'm here with my good friend, Patrick Kelly. And uh, Patrick, do you have uh, any recollections about your first time with this film? Uh, Yeah, no, I I love this movie. Um, I think it was the first movie I ever saw in the theater by myself. Um, I had just moved down to Orange County from Barstow. How old were you? Um, How old was I? Yeah, do you Uh, remember? I think I was like 19. Oh, really? 18 or 19. Oh, yeah, okay, that would be a run. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah, I was. Uh, I think that's why it's memorable. Other than it being a very memorable movie, I, um, um, yeah, I just remember having nothing to do, and a new Coen Brothers movie had just come out, and I love the Coen Brothers. I, I'd seen, I think, all of their movies up to that point. Yeah, I was had like this really strange obsession with The Big Lebowski at the time, where I was like, kind of like poorly modeling my life after him because I was like super into weed, I was super into being lazy, so like. <laughs> the dude was just like my guy at the time. Yeah, and just quoting that movie incessantly was was my yeah exactly, my and just like you know white Russians all the time. Yeah. It was sad. Yeah, so this is kind of like a big year for movies, and it was like kind of my favorite, one of my favorite double features of all time. There will be blood, and No Country for Old Men. And they're so similar, right? It's like for whatever Oscar it was that year, if No Country didn't get it, it was There Will Be Blood. Yeah, exactly. Um, and they're just. Two of my favorite films of all time. Definitely top five, both of them, which is kind of incredible for one year. Um, but I was kind of thinking like the context around it and the time in which this happened and um, kind of like the cynicism involved in both these movies. But we'll get to that later. Um, I want to talk about your um, interest in Cormac McCarthy because that's kind of what brought us here, our shared love in Cormac McCarthy. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, um, yeah, back back to that story of the the movie theater you know me sitting in the movie theater i don't think there was anybody else i guess it had been i guess it had been out for a while because i don't even remember anybody else in the theater Um, yeah but you know it was like the first time i had ever just on a whim went and gone gone seen a movie by myself yeah Um, don't really remember anybody else in the theater um the that last uh scene with tommy lee jones where he's talking about his you know that his dream about his dad and then boom just full stop <laughs> black, uh, you know, and it says based on the novel by Cormac McCarthy. And, uh, and that was the first time I'd been made aware of this guy. Okay. Um, yeah. So, yeah. I basically just went and picked up the book and was reading it, you know, read it over the next couple of weeks. And I, I was like, I feel like I, I just purely accidental. Cause I didn't, I don't think I realized that that movie had been based off of, of a novel. Mm-hmm. But I do remember, like, three years later, I was in San Francisco, and I walked into a bookstore, and one of the recommendations was Blood Meridian. Oh, and so that was your first foray. That was my first foray into the world of Cormac McCarthy, and it's just dark. It's just basically a montage of violence, which is kind of relevant. I mean, as far as I remember, it's been 12 years. Like, I'm not even sure how the novel ends, but I just remember it being, like, these cowboys basically pillaging towns is that is that yeah, correct that's it that's basically it yeah it's yeah. like um it's a marauding band of uh uh soldiers um and you know like a lot of them are i don't know if they're civil war vets uh they could be um but the, yeah they're like a they're like a marauding band of soldiers that go down into um 
like what's now Mexico. Yeah. And and they're just like slaughtering like like anybody and everybody for because there was a scalp bounty at that time. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Yeah. So they're like going just, you know, murderous rampage, you know. So Yeah, and I feel like it's through the eyes of um I don't know. It's, it's a character different from this band of people, I feel like. Like, it's a, kind of like this outside character observing, like, maybe, like, a group of ghosts that are just, like, haunting these towns. Like, they, they felt very shapeless and nameless at the time. Like, I'm remembering very vague details because, yeah. like I said, it's been very long since I've watched it. But, um, so that was happening at the time. And um, this came after, I think, two of the Coen's biggest flops, which was Intolerable Cruelty and The Lady Killers. And... I think, I think these these films got like trashed like undeservedly because if you watch them, they're they're still actually like pr- right. pretty good, you know. Yeah, take them out of the context of the time or whatever. Exactly, and, and they they they're okay. You know, yeah, they're like good. I can definitely watch those once or twice. Um, and I, I feel like maybe they were looking for a win here or like I, I feel like sometimes directors will do this thing where like when they get bashed critically, they'll like have a response movie. I don't know if like the Coen brothers are that petty because they're fucking geniuses and they know it. But like I, I think of something like, I don't know, like an M. Night Shyamalan movie, like when he made The Happening, I just felt like that was a reaction movie. You know what I mean? Yeah. And if this is a reaction movie, like this is the best reaction movie, I guess. Um, anyway, not provable in any sense. But um, no, yeah, I think like you're on to something with um, with Lady Killers and what what was the other one? Intolerable yeah, cruelty. Yeah, yeah. Um, that was uh, George Clooney. Yes, Catherine Zeta-Jones, which yeah. I just recently rewatched, and it's not bad. It's like funny. Right. Yeah, right. it works as a, it's it's definitely the lesser of their works, but in in terms of like when somebody is this good, I always think of it as like their least good work, like right. nothing bad, just like their least good. Um, yeah, like. Um, we we got it. I think that ties into the two thousands and nineties movies. Right? Oh, yes, you know, we like, got it. Do you want to do you want to get into? Yeah, that? Yeah, let's do it. Basic basically, the argument we kind of are are, are trying to make here, right, is that there was a tone shift in the two thousands, mm-hmm. and and we can tie it to nine eleven or or the internet. And, yeah, um, or the combination of the two. The combination, yeah, yeah definitely. Just like something something changes in the two, early two thousands, and um, and you know maybe. Maybe the Coen brothers just didn't catch on to that, you know, to, you know, with the, with intolerable clu- uh, cruelty and lady killers. And um, yeah, the, this is their response film. It's like, oh, this is the tone that we, that, that movies are, are taking. I can definitely see it. Cause there is like this uh, spree of movies in the nineties that was more about like a existential despair. Like what, what is my place in the world? You know what I mean? And this all comes to a culmination with like fight club where it's like, we're uh, idolizing these rock stars and movie gods or whatever. And it's just, it's, Fight Club is kind of like pointed, pointedly making fun of like people like that, and you know, maybe it's taken in different ways now. Right. But there's things like um, you know, let's say like Reality Bites or maybe uh, the Beyond Sunset Beyond Sunrise trilogy. Uh, it's more of like an existential quandary, like where's my place in my life, and like the big thing in Fight Club is like we have no great war, we have no great depression. That's our lives, and we've been lied to this whole time, and it hurts, you know. And that was kind of like. Uh, the great struggle in the movies of the nineties. And then you get nine 11 and then, and then you get George Bush, you know, he, he just became like this sideshow almost like people became interested in government. Like it was, it's like really renewed interest. Um, and I feel like because of the internet, because uh, movies like Michael Moore movies, you know, I, be, I I feel like politics became more mainstream in a way that they weren't in the nineties, unless you were like specifically interested in that kind of thing. Yeah, for sure. No, um, no, that's a that's a good point. And I I wasn't I didn't think about Fight Club when we were when I um you know was going down this line of thinking is you know comparing movies from the '90s, movies from the 2000s, because you can you can look at um, uh, the Coen Brothers movies in the in the '90s, right? Like you you see the tone shift in in the Coen Brothers' own catalog. Like yes. You see, um, you know, in the late '80s and '90s all of their movies are just kind of like, if there is any cynicism or, or darkness or anything, it's like, it's a dark humor, you know, like um, they're just kind of humorous and silly in a way. Yeah. I think, I think raising uh, Arizona and um, almost to the point of absurdity, like they're doing yeah. some absurdist stuff. And as I pointed out before in my notes, I, I was talking about uh, their protagonists and how 
they might be like stupid and like a danger to themselves or people around them, but there's a naivete that makes them likable too. You know, yeah, there's like a yeah. general understanding like, Oh, maybe I'm kind of this guy. Right. <laughs> yeah. I think, um, uh, uh, Ulysses Everett McGill from, uh, Oh brother. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. He's like a lovable idiot, you yeah, know, exactly. and yeah. he might get people around him killed, but it's just like, Oh, you know, right. that's fine. I could, I, I can imagine myself maybe almost getting my friends killed at some point. Right. Sorry. <laughs> He's got the gift of gab. You know? Yeah, most definitely. <laughs> and most of his characters do. Yeah. Like Nicolas Cage in Raising Arizona has the gift of gab. And we were going to talk about how Raising Arizona and No Country are very similar. But first, um, will you just drop some Cormac knowledge on us? Like just the oh, yeah. trajectory of his career? Because sure. there's a lot in common here. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So as I, as I mentioned, like I, you know, saw based on a novel by Cormac McCarthy, went home. I think I you know, may have gone to the bookstore right after that movie and picked it up, uh, picked up No Country for Old Men, which is a weird, weird place to start with uh, Cormac McCarthy's novels. He, um, I wouldn't even put that in really the top five of my favorite uh, novels of his, but you know, I was blown away by it when I read it. Yeah. Then I went deeper dive, but uh, um, yeah, Cormac McCarthy started publishing novels in um, the 70s. Um, uh, no, 60s. Uh, his, his first novel is published in 1965, and, and uh, his first four novels are all, you know, they all take place in Appalachian, Tennessee. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, he kind of uh, famously wins a MacArthur uh, grant, um, I think in 1980, 1981, something like that. Mm. Um, and with that money, you know, he's, he's, he's kind of like a reclusive figure. So he doesn't give a whole lot of interviews. Um, but you know, he, so because of that, he's kind of got, he's kind of like this, like legendary literary figure. Um, yeah. A Salinger. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Um, those, um, uh, those Appalachian Tennessee novels, by the way, you know, like he, uh, the first one is called the orchard keeper. The last one he writes is published in 1979. It's it's called Sutri, and th- and that's one that's um, uh, you know been kind of identified as somewhat semi autobiographical, um, and it's it's about a, a young man who um, kind of rejects the path that his forebears have kind of laid out for him. You know, like I think. Uh, um, the main character's father wants him to be a lawyer or something like that. And, uh, yeah. and he rejects that he lives on a houseboat in on the Mississippi and he's, you know, he's just getting drunk all the time and, and, and he's a subsistence fisherman. He just goes out there and runs the lines, whatever he catches, he goes to the market and sells and, and with the money and he drinks up that money. Yeah. Like uh, heavy drunk, like it's yeah. like gasoline or something. I, yeah. I can't remember what they call the drink. Yeah. 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 And mind you, this is Cormac McCarthy's, semi-autobiographical novel you know like uh, and and but this is the last novel he writes that's in Appalachian Tennessee um he wins uh or he's awarded this MacArthur grant and um you know if you're not familiar with that it's basically this foundation gives you a bunch of money to just do whatever you do you know it's like hey you got something yeah um here's a bunch of money just it's a genius do, grant yeah it's a genius grant right mm-hmm. um just do what you do. And, uh, with that money, like he, I think this is documented fairly, you know, famously, he like just relocates to Texas, you know, buys a pickup truck and learns Spanish and like, and change it. Like all of his novels since from that point on are Westerns, you know, mm-hmm. he's writing about the American Southwest. Yeah. And, um, the first one is blood Meridian. The, the first novel you read and that that's taking place in, uh, the 1850s 1860s um brutally violent like just the bloodiest like most violent like the language and in, in, yeah. in these war scenes is just absolutely nuts it, like, it's hard to read sometimes it's very hard to yeah. Read. yeah it's it's like kind of nauseating at points because he's just he's so good at describing things like that's just kind of his thing almost to the point of absurdity sometimes because you're just kind of rolling your eyes at it you're like okay yeah you're like fucking great stop yeah um gratuitous at this point yeah the the third page of people just getting like disemboweled (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, it really is. But um, his style definitely changes like when you get to No Country or something like that, where yeah, you only get like touches of something like that. Uh, there is one scene where he describes like uh, Wells's brain being sl- scattered or like splattered on the wall and everything mm-hmm. he knew was like right there on the wall or something. Um, and that's kind of like the only taste of that kind of previous style that you get in No Country. Yeah, he he um, he pairs his prose down significantly by the time you get to No Country. Yeah. Blood Meridian's hard to read. It is. It's dense. Yeah, I mean, most of his work is dense. Like, you can't do it without a dictionary, I feel. Yeah. And I was reading something like The Road, and I can't remember what the word was, but um, it's a word that I had to do a deep Google search on. And what I came up with was like on this, like a, a message board and like, this word hasn't been like used since like the 17th century or something. Yeah, yeah, that's and what like, basically, but all it means is like the grace of God. Like <laughs> I can't remember the word. I'll get back to you on that. Yeah, he but, likes to, he likes to pull out a word that hasn't been in circulation for 300 years. Or whatever. Yeah. And he's not shy about it. Like he knows he's that good. Like when I was reading the little prologue to Sutri, I was like, this guy's a dick. <laughs> yeah, so you gotta have a thesaurus handy. <laughs> but there, like, um, there is comedy in his work, and we, I was thinking about like the cynicism of both the Coens and Cormac, and I think there is comedy in Cormac's work, but he's like also like this very self-serious writer. Yeah. Um, and I, I, th- I, I think the comedy in in Cormac's work work is. Um, in in the dialogue a lot of times you know the, yes. the dialogue is kind of like i want to say oh shucksy you know like, yeah definitely you know? it's like, yeah he knows how to like nail a dialect and i think yeah i think the coens are also like very good at that and that's where a lot of the comedy comes in yeah, yeah where it's just like you, you you love these characters because like they're just themselves and that like it's funny like it's funny to see people, people be themselves and like pull all these influences from like their surroundings and like that's who you are and like mm-hmm. it's, it's just kind of fucking hilarious that that's who you came out to be and like i think they're both really good at finding the comedy and just like human nature like the way people are um and they're both good at that and um well that's what i mean just take Sheriff Bell in the movie as an example. Yeah. You know, like all of his funny little sayings, you know, like he played at the top of the show, the, uh, um, what are we going to circulate? <laughs> Looking for a man who has recently drunk milk. You know, like that dialect. Like, it's like so funny. Yeah, yeah. Um, one of the, like, the zingers that I like, which I'll get to later about, like, kind of deeper meanings, because I, I think, like, offhandedly, it, it, it might seem like the Coens or Cormac are like dropping lines in there that don't mean much. And I'm talking about like, maybe like Tom Bell's first dream where it's kind of like, he kind of throws away, but I feel like there's meaning in that as well. Yeah. But, um, the, the line about dying of natural causes <laughs> where, where, um, natural to the line of yeah, work they was in. Exactly. Yeah. And I think there's, I think there's some meaning there. We'll get to that later, but yeah, there's like comedy in that. And it's like, it, it feels throwaway, but you know, like most great writers, the throwaway lines are just like hit you later. It's like finding the deep cut in an album that you like. You know, you listen to the first half and then you get to the later half. You're like, oh wait, actually, the second half of this album's like way better. Um, yeah, for sure. So, speaking of similarities, we rewatched Raising Arizona with this, and we were just kind of struck by how similar they are and kind of like the arc of the story, kind of the characters, the the mythical villain. Um, what are some of the things that kind of popped out? Or like, when did that light bulb go off in your head? And like, these are kind of... Yeah, um, I want to take some credit here. It, it just occurred to me out of nowhere how similar <laughs> these movies are. But you go, you go online and it's like, yeah, like people are making this connection. Are they? Know? Like, oh yeah. Oh, okay. Sure. Yeah, it's, it's, it's fairly obvious. And like, it... it it can't be like there's no way it's coincidence right like they they are like so yeah i really don't so similar yeah so similar i mean um, cormac has to be a cohen's fan i've heard some yeah. interviews where he was uh like he wasn't on set until um josh brolin had to call cormac and be like hey come down to set why don't you check this out i feel like if you were a fan maybe he'd be a little more excited about that but it's hard to see like just the connectivity or maybe they're just you know maybe they're just Texas guys. I don't know. I don't right, know. Yeah. Right. It's all, it's all in the air, you know? Um, but what were some of the details that kind of got you about raising Arizona? Um, yeah. So like just, just plot wise, like the plots parallel so well, like, uh, you just, you've in raising Arizona, you've got the baby. Yeah. Right. And in, uh, uh, 
uh, no country, you've got the bag of money. You know, like those are the two MacGuffins that the plot mm-hmm. center around, and and uh, all of the characters in in each movie kind of center around this MacGuffin like the same way. You know, like you've got um, in Raising Arizona, you've got H.I. McDonough and his and his wife. Um, you know, going after you know like taking this baby, this mm-hmm. thing that they're not supposed to have. Yeah. Um, and same thing with Llewellyn and and the bag of money. Yeah. And and basically the all the the chaos that ensues after you know them them taking this thing that they're not supposed to have. Yeah. Um, but yeah. There's also like some similarities and like sequences that that occur. Yeah, like the, some scenes. Yeah. Yeah. Just but like spot on. Like yeah. you you had mentioned when um when the biker i can't remember his name um oh lenny 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 small lenny yeah, yeah. like the I, most ridiculous name for the lone biker of the apocalypse yeah like he's shitting small animals from his bike and that is yeah. exactly what happens in no country the book and the movie yeah yeah <laughs> i wanted to mention that that scene is in the book yeah right? it's, it's in the book it's in the book he's driving um up to this bridge yeah yeah so if you see the movie um it's that shot of Shiger rolling down the window, pointing his gun out the window and mm-hmm. shooting the bird. Yeah. That's exactly <laughs> described. It's just exactly like exactly so like strangling similar. And I yeah. wonder even down to the detail of him not hitting the bird. Exactly. You know? So is this a Cohen is he a Cohen's man or is this the shit people do in Texas? Like are people rolling down their windows and shooting at small animals? Right. right. <laughs> like is is that the connective tissue? Yeah, and and that's what yeah, and so like if if anybody out out there has not seen Raising Arizona, there there's um you know the main antagonist is the lone biker of the apocalypse. He's just this mm-hmm. kind of supernatural um antagonist. Um you know he's at one point Nick Cage shoots him in the hand and fires like comes mm, out of the yeah. bullet wound. You know it's like he's <laughs> he's uh, otherworldly. Yeah, he definitely is. Um, and and that you know that's a similarity with Anton Chigurh. That, it is. Yeah, I noticed that it is like supernatural. Yeah, but. He is killed. <laughs> uh, he is killed, huh? Oh, the uh, the biker. The biker, Lenny. Yeah, Lenny, Lenny, yeah, Lenny is killed. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I have this theory about, like, what sugar is as far as, like, a force. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't yeah. know. Should we talk about that now? Um, maybe we go through more of the connections to Raising Arizona. And yeah, we'll, let's do it. Well, okay, so I kind of did a quick Google search after you mentioned it, mm-hmm. and... People were drawing a lot of similarities to Fargo and Blood Simple and stuff like that. And I, oh, really? yeah, yeah. And I see that because there's kind of the same, um, Frances McDormand's character in Fargo is just like, she doesn't understand what's happening in the world and the violence, you know? Mm, she's naive, yeah. Yeah, e- exactly. And uh, she doesn't know how to deal with it. And that's very much like what's happening in No Country, especially with Ed Tom Bell. And, um, well, I mean, so she's naive, but she's like, she handles it competently, right? Like, yeah, definitely she wins in mm-hmm. the end right like she she finds um that guy putting his partner in the wood chipper she like and and gets the better yeah. of him but no you're totally right like mm-hmm. i think she's 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 totally naive she's kind of she's kind of no i mean i i see the connection now now that you mention it yeah no country to fargo that you know yeah wow <laughs> I didn't realize that until yeah, that's sure. the one I saw the connection to. And after, but but uh, I mean, despite that, I feel I still think that like raising Arizona is kind of like the most strikingly similar one. Where I was like, there's things word for word like uh, I had told you about the the joke about evening each other out, where uh, Hi is talking to Ed, or they're trying to adopt, yeah, and Hi's. H.I. is like, I know I have a checkered past. Ed is a two-time decorated officer. So that ought to each, uh, even each other out. Right, right. Yeah, basically the same thing that Lou Allen says about having a, a, a good feeling, you know? Right, right. Evening out the bad one. Yeah, Carla Jean's like, I have a bad feeling. And, yeah, yeah, which I do not, I don't know if that's in the book. I don't remember if that's in the book. I don't remember either. Yeah, that's kind but, of too uh, small a detail. Um, yeah, like, and, and just some of the shots too, like, um, and sets. Yeah. Like, Carla Jean's and Llewellyn's trailer mm-hmm. looks exactly like H.I.'s and Yeah, definitely. It's like the same trailer. I don't know. It's like <laughs> down to the wood paneling. 
And I don't know, maybe that's <laughs> maybe another thing. Texas thing. Yeah. I don't know. That's and just... the setting too, right? Yeah, exactly. Like this, uh, no Country takes place in 1980, and mm-hmm. Raising Arizona as a, the movie came out in 1989 yeah. or something like. Could that. be possible they used it as like a reference point. Mm-hmm. They just looked back at their old work, like this was what was actually happening, you know. Right. Um, but there's other things about we, we uh the, like the undercurrent of violence, which is like a thing in Cohen movies and a thing in Cormac novels. Yeah. And there's something going on in Raising Arizona where Nicholas Cage, H.I., he's like, um, he's kind of like a really moral character. He's like, he's he's like a, he's like a, he's a victim of the prison system. Basically, he's been institutionalized, but he's he's a non, he's a nonviolent criminal. And, and, and like the world is just like repeatedly shitting on him. And I think this is made most apparent. Uh, during the chase when he like robs the store for diapers and mm-hmm. everyone that's chasing him has a fucking gun and they're trying to blow his head off. Yeah. <laughs> like he's in this violent world and that's like, that's the perfect encapsula- encapsulation of what's happening in no country. Like it's, uh, it's these men in a violent world, you know, like how do you navigate such a violent world? And um, I think Cormac is very much about that. And my idea of Cormac is, you know, to, to be alive is to live in violence, you know, that yeah. we, we, we enter into this violent world and I feel like that's what Raising Arizona is, is trying to say, you know, like ultimately Nicolas Cage is this really moral character who's, who, who's definitely been victimized. You know, he's like, he, he feels comfortable in prison almost in a sense, like definitely. Right, yeah. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, um, no, you're, you're, you're right. Like despite it being kind of slapstick, mm-hmm. like that it, it, he is being, yeah, I'm imagining that scene of him like running down the aisle with, uh, <laughs> in the grocery store with the, just like all of the products on the aisle getting blasted with the shotgun. Yes, yes. Yeah. And this pack of dogs chasing him. Right, right. Which is but kept... he's, it's just like he's like a fish in water, you know? Like, yeah. This is his life. Like, he's exactly. Just running, he's just running through it. Yeah, yeah. And I, I feel like in that scene, they're kind of comparing like people to a pack of dogs. Like, mm-hmm. you know, they're just after him, you know? Like, they're just out for blood yeah. in a sense. And I think the comparison with animals is something that also happens a lot in No Country. Um, like after the first time, second time, sugar murders someone, you cut to like, is he hunting antelope? I think it's antelope. But uh, yeah, so you, you get that quick oh, cut yeah. yeah, of him like putting a hole in this guy's head and then you get Lou Allen looking down the scope. Oh, yeah. And you get a lot of that, you know, like the dead dogs lying with the dead men. That's a dead dog. I guess it is. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, you mentioned something to me earlier about um, the sugar's weapon, you know, that I hadn't really thought of before, but it's a connection to animals. Like if you yeah. want to talk a little bit about that. Yeah, exactly. The cattle gun. Yeah. And it's just, there, there's a lot of, there's a lot of that. There's a lot of like people are animals and we're just kind of getting through our lives being herded. Mm-hmm. And when he, you know, when he pulls over that guy, I think it's the second murder and he says like, stay still. And he's just like so complicit. Like he's right, just, right. he's just like shepherding him into his like own death. And like, and I thought it was interesting. And like, I don't know. Like, we, yeah, what do you think that says about people that like all you got to do is kind of mock authority a little bit? Exactly. And they'll people go along with yeah, it. Yeah. And completely, yeah, just, yeah. he didn't fight it at all, right. which is like kind of like it's, it's so sad. It's like really sad. It's so disheartening. Right. But like I think there's something there. And it's like Shigeru's not even wearing a police officer he, uniform. Yeah. Or like that. But, and and but, the fact that this leaves like no trace of a bullet or something, mm-hmm. I think it's saying something too. Because I think Sugar is like kind of uh, like he's personifying death, mm-hmm. and so that's like there's like no trace of him. So like natural causes, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So when Tom Lee Jones says like they died of natural causes, natural to the line of the work that they're in, right, Sugar right. like he's just like personifying death in a way, and that's why I see him as like a, a force of nature, and not so much of an adversary, but like inevitable. Right, he's the he's the Thanos of No Country. <laughs> yeah, or the, or the Joker, <laughs> or the like, Joker. Yeah, yeah, you know, like if we're talking about post nine eleven two thousands movies, mm-hmm. like uh, you know, the Joker in in the Dark Knight mm-hmm. and Shiger in No Country, they're like the same character. Mm-hmm. It's it's pretty remarkable. Or or you take Joker and uh, uh, Harvey Dent from that movie, mm. combine them into one, and that's yeah. that's Shiger. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, but they say over and over again, like, well, not over and over again, a few times that he's like a principled man. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if he has principles as much as he's just like, just being a force. But it's different in the book. And and that's one thing that kind of, kind of caught my attention is, it's like Cormac is really good at what he does as well as the Coens. But the way they kind of edited his story, like the stuff that they like, 
chose to hold back is just kind of astounding, you know, that they saw like, don't need that, don't need that. Right. Yeah. And like, that takes a lot of confidence, but also like a good eye, you know? Yeah. 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 And I think I, I just like thinking about them reading this novel, Mm -hmm. making the connection to raising Arizona Mm -hmm. and they're like, we could just remake this as raising Arizona (laughs) too. (laughs) With a bag of money instead of a baby. Um, I don't know what they saw in that novel that that made them think that. Yeah. Because, like, you think about it, like, the connections to raising Arizona are, like, stylistic in a lot of ways, you know. Mm -hmm. They they could have done that with so many other things, I guess. But, like, when we brought up the... uh, the scene in the novel where Shiger shoots the bird. Yeah. You know, maybe that was it. Maybe they were reading the novel and they saw that and they were like, oh my God. Well, Other we've than we've the, done this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we did this. Like, um, and then, uh, yeah, no, it's like the idea of like artists ripping each other off constantly, you know, um, mm-hmm. but not, not as, not like thievery, you know, it's just like. No, borrowing, influence. Yeah, and McCarthy says that this in one of his interviews or something like that. Mm-hmm. You know, books are made of other books, and like yeah, for sure. The, um, um, like you read his uh, his first novels, the the uh, Appalachian Tennessee novels. Mm-hmm. Like that, that's Southern Gothic. That's that's William Faulkner. Like yeah, most definitely. Yeah, you know, like he's obviously. Yeah, even if you're looking at strictly from, from like style, stylistically, you yeah. know, a little easier to read than Faulkner sometimes. Yeah, but you know, without the the quotation marks and stuff like that, he he's borrowing some things definitely, but in tone and setting, like in just the general feel, you know, mm-hmm. I definitely saw that when I first read Blood Meridian. Like, I'm feeling some Faulkner vibes for sure. Yeah, but I I like that um, that concept. That I mean, it, it's palpable in in No Country that you know. The, the geniuses out there are, are really picking apart other geniuses work and incorporating it mm-hmm. into their, into their own yeah. uh, vision. Thinking about what this film is about. And I, I think if you look at it, you know, kind of a few different ways, you can pull some things, but I'm kind of interested in your ideas of like, ultimately like, what is this film about? What is it saying to you? Um, well, Sheriff Bell is front and center to me, mm-hmm. you know, like, um, and, it's like this push and pull of the older generation and, and the younger generation, right? It's like this push and pull of, of the older generation feeling like they don't belong in this new world, you know, like, Mm -hmm. and, and like you see it with every, every older generation, like decries, like the, you know, the kids and their music, you know, and stuff. Yeah. Um, (laughs) But yeah, I think that's, I think that's what, the movie is about like, um, like fundamentally. And, uh, what I, what I like about how both McCarthy and the Coens, uh, represent Sheriff Bell is he's not overly caricatured. Like he's, I, I don't feel like he's like, uh, I mean, as a character, he is like, man, I yearn for the good old days, you know, like as a character, he is that, <laughs> yeah. but like, I don't feel like he's overly caricatured to where he's, no, he's, he's easy to d- dismiss. Yeah. You know? Like he, like you can't really dismiss him. It, it's easy to, to kind of view him charitably, you know, and definitely, and like understand. And that's reinforced when you get Tommy Lee Jones playing it. Cause he just kills it. Yeah. Yeah. And Tommy Lee Jones. So like I said earlier, like, if no country didn't get the Oscar that year, it was, um, it was, there will be blood. Like, <laughs> if Daniel day Lewis didn't exist, I feel like <laughs> Tommy like, Lee Jones would have Jones would have got it. Right. Yeah. It's, it's just so nuanced. And yeah. I mean, you know, I, I feel like he's like about to cry that last monologue mm-hmm. and, um, yeah, well, yeah, how about we listen to it? Yeah, yeah. Let's, yeah, let's do that. Second one. It was like, we was both back in older times. And I was a horseback going through the mountains of the night, going through this pass in the mountains. It was cold and there was snow on the ground. And he would, rode past me and kept on going, never said nothing going by, he just rode on past. And he had his blanket wrapped around him and his head down. When he rode past, I seen he was carrying fire. 
and horn the way people used to do them. I, I could see the horn from the light inside of it, about the color of the moon. And in the dream, I knew that he was going on ahead. He's fixing to make a fire somewhere out there and all that dark and all that cold. And I knew that whenever I got there, he'd be there. And then I woke up. So that just like gets me every fucking time. Like yeah. I get, I'm a little choked up right now. <laughs> like it's just crazy. That and like and the way like, it just full stop. Yeah, he's over ticking clock and everything. And the yeah. the, the look that they exchange, like his his brows are furrowed and he's looking off to the side and then he looks straight ahead. I don't know. There's just yeah. something that's just like it yeah. kills me. And so he he uh, tells two dreams, right? Mm-hmm. Like the first one is just kind of. Like, like you're saying, like it feels like a throwaway, but it also feels like there's something there. Yeah. Um, but it, I just kind of feel like it's like, like the jab before the haymaker, you know, like <laughs> it's like the little, it's a lighthearted jab and then boom, you're floored by the second dream. Yeah. I, okay. The, the thing I, I was thinking about the first dream, cause he says, uh, he gave me money. Uh, I think I lost it. Yeah. So it's kind of, I, what I feel that he's saying is like, Maybe that's like ad, like the advice you forget, or like he like gave me these things to survive out in the world. But like as you yeah. get older, you forget all this shit, and then you have to deal with the world, like you know. And then you're it's, unprepared. Yeah, it's the same theme, right? Yeah. It's like the authoritative father figure that's trying to show you the way or whatever, you know. Yeah, most and, definitely. Yeah. But the interesting comment is like I, I'm older than he ever was, you know, and um, just kind of how he feels lost being an old man and how his father never got to be. Yeah. Um, and I guess that, you know, contributes to the title, No Country for Old Men. Right, right. Yeah. That dream, I think, that dream sums up that this, this theme, right, mm-hmm. so well, of um, Sheriff Bell just yearning for for guidance, I guess. Like, And there's really nobody yeah. to, to guide him. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, that, that dream is very symbolic. It's... it's um, his dad riding a horse and he's carrying like the um he's carrying the fire in a horn which you know i would say um you know like he's riding out into the unknown he's riding out into the darkness and i what i think that symbolizes is to to the to sheriff bell that it's um you know like the values of his father or whatever mm-hmm. that, are, that are gonna guide him into the future or the novel situation but um you know that that's not like that that can't be the case right like his dad's not around like yeah here you are in the world like you got to navigate it mm-hmm. but and you know he's 11 like you said he's outmatched yeah yeah and he's an old man himself yeah exactly um which is another interesting point about the book that they didn't put in the movie is that he tells this war story where he right yeah he, i don't from the movie i don't even think we know that sheriff bell's a war veteran. we don't no yeah. no um but he tells a war story where he's like just outmatched and he runs. Mm. Um, like he said, he was like, it was dark. And as soon as the sun came up or whatever, he runs, you know, so, and he, oh, he yeah. didn't even know what was out there. It's like, I just ran. Yeah. And then they ended up giving him a medal and a he, medal, yeah, and, and he, he hates it. Yeah. He can't even look at it. Exactly. Yeah. Carries his guilt. Mm-hmm. And I think that this, um, this, this is a movie about like heroes. And that's like my theory is just like, Cormac McCarthy is warning, not warning, but it's like reminding a new generation that there are no heroes, you know? Right. Um, he's subverting all these archetypes. He's subverting the hero. Like, Llewellyn, like, yeah, he's like a guy you could admire, but ultimately, like, he's kind of immoral. Like, he, it's, he's still, he stole a lot of cash. Like, not in a judgy way. I don't mean to judge him. I right, like right. the guy. But, you know, he, he does something immoral, and he's being chased. And, like, yeah, he wants to provide for his wife, but... I think in a way the movie is judging him, you know, like, yeah. Well, I mean, does this, um, the, the fact that, okay. Sugar Mm -hmm. promises him that like, if he doesn't bring the money, yeah. Like I'm going to kill your wife. Like that's what he says. He's like, I'm going to kill you no matter what. Yeah. But if you don't bring me the money, I'm going to go out to Odessa and kill your wife. And Um, he, um, and Llewellyn takes that as it's like a challenge. Yeah. Yeah. And like, uh, so, so yeah, he takes it as a challenge. Um, you know, he ends up not surviving like he, you know, and we, we could talk about more of that 
later, like how that ties into to your theory of uh, um, subverting the hero archetype. Mm-hmm. The fact that he dies off screen. Yeah. But um, which people complained about. Yeah. And like early reviews, like people complain like right, that. It's like, right. oh, well, you probably just didn't get it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. But, you know, I think that plays into um, like Llewellyn's morality, you know, like, is that the right, like you had an opportunity mm-hmm. to save your wife, but yeah. you decided to try to and know, parlay this into a situation where like you get out of this alive with the money. Yeah. And I think it's because he believes himself to be a hero because he was mm-hmm. in the war, you know? And yeah. it's like this idea of like uh, people in the military, they're the only kind of like possessing special abilities or something. And we get that with uh, Carson Wells, who's like supposed to be this badass. Who's he's like the guy in a, in a different movie. He would be like the new villain, you know, he would go and right. take out the other guy and then he would be like the guy that, you know, the protagonist is going up against in the end, you know, but he's, he's introduced and then he's taken out like, fuck that guy. Right. And then, Oh, so I think like Lou Ellen is like kind of like romanticizing himself from being in the military. Like, Oh, I have these mm-hmm. skills, you know, like yeah. I'm a warrior, I'm a soldier. And, um, they kind of, he's, he's a sniper in the war, right? Yeah, exactly. The first scene we see him in, he's, uh, you know, he's sniping some, some animals. Yeah, yeah. And I, I find that, like, that kind of lends them some ignorance, you know? Like, so, kind of, like, self-mythologizing, which, like, feeds into this, like, fuck your heroes theme. Like, mm-hmm. I feel like that's what Cormac was getting at. And I think he was saying this because he was kind of, he was just laying out, America's always been this way. You know, like, we're, we self-mythologize. Like, we're, like, this big person in our own head. But no, it's always been trash, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, it's always been violence. It's always been this. And he's like, it's no different. Uh, It's no different now. And I I think you get this in the intro where over the first monologue, we're watching the dawn of a new day. The sun is coming up. And as the sun is coming, uh, like, when the sun meets the horizon, as it's coming over the horizon, we get a shot of a fence and then the camera crosses that fence, like, oh, brand new day, new world. But no, you get the shots of the same kind of like oh, landscape. Yeah. Like, you know, like, no, this is not a new America. Nothing is different, you know? Like, things are getting worse. They've always been this way. Yeah. Yeah. And I think Alice in the book, not in the movie, but Alice says uh, people act like America doesn't have a lot to like apologize for or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and he says, but, you know, but they do, you know, that we do. We have a lot to, to reckon with. Right. Well, yeah. well, and and that's the paradox of yearning for the good old days, right? Exactly. It's it's not, Wh- which I think is just like it's like painfully more relevant, like even today. You know, it's just right. like another sign of great art is it just like keeps renewing itself, and you like pull all these new things. Um, yeah, but- and and ju- and if you look at the the trajectory of McCarthy's Western novels, they're they're all extremely violent, mm-hmm. you know, and and he spans it chronologically mm-hmm. from the eighteen fifties. To the night to nineteen eighty, yeah, know, the, is the last Western novel that he that he writes, mm. um, and uh, which just kind of you know just makes Sheriff Bell like such a more rich character. I feel like because mm-hmm. like in the context of you know you know he's not writing Sheriff Bell as this flowery kind of like yeah we should be yearning for the good old days. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like he's yearning for the good old days, but he's kind of delusional about that to an extent yeah I think I think his character fits into like my whole hero's theory because he says in the he doesn't say in this movie he says says in the book he says I've lived this long because nobody respects me Mm. you know like he has no delusions about who he is he doesn't he doesn't fancy himself a hero he's ashamed about his military experience and he fully acknowledges that like he's no longer up to the task exactly exactly and and I think it's about letting go of the idea that that there are heroes that were Mm -hmm. bigger than death itself you know and I think Sugar is kind of like playing the death character like I think he transcends adversary to force of nature to death like he's straight up Sugar's just death and that's that's why he just like disappears you know well have you have you heard uh, um, the thought Sugar as like the Nietzschean ubermensch you know because he's like outside of society Mm. like he's outside of culture Mm -hmm. like he's carson wells even says like he's a homicidal lunatic but he's a man of principle yeah you know like he's the (laughs) he's the uber mentioned that he's created his own values yeah definitely totally created his own values and and that's like that's why i think what adds another layer to this thing Mm -hmm. of like the push and pull of the older generation who like tends to like yearn towards conservatism Mm -hmm. and 
and the the like the force of nature that is Shigur. Mm-hmm. You know, like he's totally outside of society, mm-hmm. totally outside of culture, and um, and like has created his own values, and you know. Um, mm. And I guess as a consequence of yeah, uh, yeah, and, and psychopath. Yeah, they say he's like a principal character, but I think in the book he kind of he, he's kind of ta- he's like taunting Wells before he kills him, like more yeah. than in the movie. Oh yeah, even yeah, I, I think this supports the point, like where he says um, in the movie, mm-hmm. he says uh, if the rule that you followed brought mm-hmm. you to this, yeah. of what use was the rule? Which mm-hmm. is the repudiation of any <laughs> normative like value structure. You know, yeah. he's like you're if your normative morality like got you here with like, you know, my shotgun pointing at your face, like what good was it? Yeah. (laughs) What also struck me this time around is kind of like how apolitical the movie is, Mm -hmm. but there's politics in the book. I feel like, yeah. 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 Um, one thing that struck me in particular is Ed Tom Bell talking about taking his wife to some sort of rally or campaign or something. And this young woman saying right wing this, right wing that. He's like, I don't know what she was talking about. Like, yeah, yeah. And I think Cormac's like making the point, like, and this is why I, I like politics came to mind. Like, this is why I think he had it in mind, reminding people, like, no, it's not politics. It's not the Democrats. It's not the Republicans. This country is fucking like evil. Right. <laughs> or, or it's just like it's just been there. Like whatever, yeah. whatever, whatever the manifestation is of, yeah. of politics. It's like a manifestation of something that's just always been there. Yeah. This conflict that's always been there. This, yeah. Uh, the, it's in, in the structure. And that's what I was saying yeah. about sugar, like being this force of evil, like he's like the coin because it's like in the structure of America, you know, the yeah. American dollar, the American coin, like evil violence. It's, it's in, you know, it's the American structure. I, I do love, um, at the end of, uh, that scene where he's talking about right wing, what is <laughs> she's talking about? her daughter being able to have an abortion. Yeah. Not only will she be able to have an abortion, she'll be able to have you put to sleep. Yeah. (laughs) It's like, and that pretty much ended the conversation, Yeah, which I think is hilarious and should have been in the movie, but maybe a little too political for the Coens. Right. Right. Yeah. Because I feel like they do. That's a lightning rod right there. Yeah, it really is. It really is. And they kind of do apolitical work in a sense. Like there's politics underneath Mm -hmm. raising Arizona. There is politics. He mentions Reagan and stuff like that, which is hilarious. Yeah. Yeah. The line, like, <laughs> I tried to straighten up and fly straight, but I just couldn't with that some bitch raising in the White House. <laughs> Everyone says he's a good man. Maybe his advisors are confused. Yeah. <laughs> so let's go over some scenes that, that kind of make this movie what it is. Um, what's kind of the first thing you want to hear? Um, let's do what you got ain't nothing new. All right, let's do it. When do you die? Nineteen zero and uh, nine. No, I mean, was it right away or in the night or when was it? I believe it was that night. She buried him the next morning, digging in that hard old caliche. What you got ain't nothing new. This country's hard on people. I just had to get him sing caliche. Yeah, that hard old Kalichi. Um, what do you got to say about that? Uh, just as an aside, do you recognize the actor in that scene? No. He's. Uh, do you ever see Northern Exposure? No, I haven't. Um, yeah, he's uh, he's the rich guy in the in that, in that mm. series. But uh, but anyway, is yeah. he that good? Northern Exposure. Uh, he's all right. Because he's fucking great in that he, scene. Yeah, he's so heavy. Yeah, he's he's good. Um, but uh, that's his uncle, right? That's uh, like Sheriff. Tom's I think cousin or cousin or cousin something. Alice. Yeah. Oh, th- cousin Alice. Yeah. 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 Um, I think that scene kind of epitomizes that, that underscore of violence we're talking about that, mm-hmm. that, that you know, it's consistent throughout, um, mm-hmm. the history of the American Southwest. Yeah. And, um, it, it's what makes that it's what makes Sheriff Bell's yearning for the past and yearning for guidance from his, you know, forefathers or whatever, um, paradoxical. Yeah. And, uh, uh, you know, just take that, take that uh, beginning monologue in, in mm. the first part of the movie, you know, mm-hmm. like he's um, kind of fascinated with how the older sheriffs operate, you know, operated back then, you know, about not carrying a gun. And I wonder what they would have done to operate these times and, and whatnot. Yeah. Um, 
yeah, his kind of like yearning for for the good old days or whatever. But do you think it? Do you think he like reckons with that? Do you think he realizes that like like the past is just as I don't know as violent? I, I maybe not. I don't think so. I don't think he. I don't think he recognizes it. Or, or if he does recognize it, he hasn't processed it in a way that like results in a yeah. coherent worldview. You know, because like he's still trying to reconcile it at the end, very end of the movie. You know, like he's <laughs> but, got. But these... he is giving up. Like he's given up yeah. being a cop. So let's hear about uh, Charlie Walters' farm. You know, Charlie Walters got that place out east of Sanderson. Well. You know how they used to slaughter bees, hit them right there with a maul, truss them up and slit their throats? Here old Charlie's got one all trussed up, all set to drain him, and the beef comes too, starts thrashing around. 600 pounds of very pissed off livestock. You'll excuse me. Well, Charlie grabs his gun there, shoots the damn thing in the head, but with all the swinging and the thrashing, it's a glance shot. Ricochets around, comes back, hits Charlie in the shoulder. You go see Charlie, he still can't pick up his right hand for his hat. The point being that even in the contest between man and steer, the issue is not certain. <sighs> of course, they slaughter steers a lot different these days. Use an air gun, shoots that little rod about that far into the brain, sucks right back in, animal never knows what hit him. Why are you telling me that, Sheriff? I don't know. My mind wanders. Great scene. Definitely. So aside from like the things that we've mentioned about like him figuring out what the murder weapon is, I think um, that that last little tag there, like, I don't know, my mind wanders is about like intuition, getting older and you get the gift of intuition. And that's something they kind of touch on in the book is uh, Llewellyn's talking to the hitchhiker, which isn't in the movie. And he's saying the truth has to be simple because you have to understand it when you're young or else it's too late. Right. Right. Yeah. 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 Like uh, I'm trying to remember, I, I just saw this today. I was looking through the book, but you know, in preparation of this and mm -hmm. I saw that, I saw that line that stuck out. Yeah. It's yeah. like the truth um, has to be simple. Uh, it has to be simple enough for a child to understand. Yeah, exactly. After that, it's too late. Cause corruption sets in easily. Uh, it sets in quick, I should yeah. say. And this happens they kind of draw it out in the scene when sugar gets hit by the car and the kids it's different in the movie. Cause I think the coins are a little less cynical, but, mm -hmm. but, um, in the book, like they take the money they give him the shirt, but then they pick up the gun off the seat, the front seat of his car. Mm -hmm. Um, which is, you know, you, you see it happening there, you know, this corruption setting in, um, the yeah. violent tendencies. And, and plus I think in the, in the book also sugar's hit by a car full of like young kids. They don't even touch on that in the movie. And that's kind of like also warning. Like this, not even this man is safe. You know, <laughs> like these young people are killing everyone. <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. Um, the, uh, no, yeah, I, I like that scene. The, the anecdote, I think, um, you know, just aside from the fact that it's like really good, really good dialogue, um, you know, McCarthy and the Coens, like we talked about, earlier like are just really good at capturing dialect and um uh and and that was you know that was just great it's like entertaining um uh, to listen to yeah um in the most fundamental way like where you just enjoy a human being a human yeah yeah it's <laughs> yeah you know like the way people talk sometimes it's just like musical you know like, <laughs> but um yeah the uh the anecdote, you know, like he's using that as the, this like pearl of wisdom to convince her that Llewellyn needs help. Right. Like, mm -hmm. even if he is as badass as you're saying, like even between the contest between man and steer, like the issue is uncertain. Mm -hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I just love that he like unconsciously connects the Shigar's murder weapon to this cattle gun, mm -hmm. you know, like, um, he doesn't have the aha light bulb moment. But yeah. Like you he's, can tell like he's getting he's, there. Yeah. Like he's like, he's made the subconscious connection, the yeah. conscious connection. Yeah. Really his cool. thinking face is so good. You can see it all happening in his face. He's yeah. putting it together. He's yeah. good. He's good at his job. Yeah. Of course they slaughter beeves differently. <laughs> is that the last thing you wanted to cover as far as scenes? As far as scenes? Yeah. I feel like those are the big ones. Yeah. Yeah, because we did the we did the dream sequence already. Yeah, definitely. 
All right, well, let's get to um, all the, uh, the outliers, as I call them, stray observations, things that you kind of noticed that, you know, kind of weren't leading to bigger topics. Kind of back to raising Arizona, there are certain shots that mm-hmm. are just like so close to yeah. raising Arizona, like the overhead shot of Llewellyn mm-hmm. and Carla Jean yeah. in bed. Like it, yes, it like yes. elicits okay. me remembering like Nicolas Cage, like, saying that night I had a dream. Yeah. Like, oh, I, I just want to say that night I had a they dream. They both end on a dream. Yeah. Both movies end like Damn. on a dream. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. yeah. And, and it's like almost kind of similar because Tommy Lee Jones is just like, well, then I woke up and, uh, and Nicholas Cage is like, well, maybe it was Utah. Like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's kind of like pie in the sky. Like, like uh, Nicholas Cage's dream. Yeah. It's like this delusional fantasy yeah. of him and Ed <laughs> growing old together. And they're, they've got a family and like a bunch of grandkids, you know, like, and my favorite um, part about that has got to be the, the two inmates crawling back in the hole, like to go oh, back yeah. to prison. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. They're like we can't hack it out here. We're just gonna crawl back into this. Right, right. <laughs> and and uh uh high is just so good, you know, he's like, I don't wanna sound judgmental. <laughs> yeah. But maybe they weren't ready for life on the outside. <laughs> um, a couple of things that I noticed watching it this time around is that there's a train sound when Sugar first kills and I thought that was just like really intense. Never noticed it before, but it's just like he has arrived. Like, oh well, yeah. I, I never know. If you, that. if yeah, if you play it loud enough, I was listening to it pretty loud last night. But um, if you play it loud enough, it's just like obvious. Like, it's just like what? Like, like a train pulling out of the station, like full on sound effects. Like it, it'd be, it's it's actually easy to miss, but it's like pretty obvious as, all, as well. Is that when the, he kills the sheriff's deputy and yeah, the office? Well, yeah, yeah, with the the shoe marks on the floor. Oh wow, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's a crazy shot too. Like all of the shoe marks on the floor. Yeah, like, all of that kicking. Yeah, and my research, like, uh, um. It was saying that they would clean it up after every shot, but then they just gave up. Like, no, it looks way better with if like right. you just leave it. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah, because what that sh- like what that seems to indicate is that it took a while. Yeah, exactly. And he fucking fought, and he fought hard. Yeah. Like he was just all yeah. over the place. Um, another thing was, <laughs> I thought this was really funny. The omitted that's what she said joke from the book, and this is why. This is kind of like, maybe this is a stretch, but like, this is Cormac speaking to his younger audience, you know, mm. like, oh, I know your jokes. I know what, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I watched The Office. Exactly. <laughs> and The Office started 2005. Uh, oh, yeah. 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 Like, just imagining Cormac McCarthy watching The Office is like blowing my mind. Like, I, Till now, I thought those two things existed in different universes. Yeah. Cormac McCarthy. (laughs) (laughs) But it just kind of hit me. Like, is he like, hey, right? I get it. (laughs) Um, Do you remember the joke? Uh, Um, He said, um, it's when they're talking on the couch. It's uh, Carla Jean and Llewellyn. They're on the couch. And he's like, keep it up. Oh. (laughs) It's like, keep it up. You'll see. Or he says, keep it up. And yeah. she says, that's what she said. He's like, we'll see what she said or didn't say. <laughs> right, right. Okay. I remember that. Yeah. They cut yeah. that. But like, I think that was smart of the Coens like that. Obviously, yeah. I don't think it would have played as well in a movie. <laughs> True. Another thing is the relationship with the woman, the women. And um, I'm talking about Carla Jean and Loretta. Oh, yeah. And just kind of like what it means to this movie, because I feel like it means something. And I feel like. Oh, yeah. I think there's a lot to be said on that, actually. Yeah. Because. Um. um Sheriff Bell, like, especially in the book, goes on and on about how his wife is, like, so great, you know, yeah. like, uh, like the luckiest he ever was, mm-hmm. like, and he lists, like, all of the um, <laughs> harrowing experience, life, you know, like, life-threatening harrowing experiences he's been in, but the luckiest he ever was yeah. when, was when she crossed the street and looked at him and he got just half of a smile or whatever. That's the luckiest he, luckiest <laughs> he ever was. But, um, yeah, she, you know, and, and he goes on. Um, several times in the book about mm-hmm. how much, you know, like he, he loves and cares about her and, uh, um, and that, you know, like he kind of thinks of her as like legitimately like the better half. Yeah. Know? And what I like about um, Carla Jean and Llewellyn is he's entirely honest with her the entire time. Like there's mm-hmm. like, he never lies to her. 
And she asks him these questions and like, he's she, a little evasive sometimes, sometimes, but he tells but he her, doesn't he lie. tells her all the things, yeah, yeah. you know, she asks and he gives her answers and they're true, you know, right, right. like what's in the, what's in the bag. So it's full of money. Yeah. He knew he would interpret that as a joke. Yeah. But. Where'd you get the good at the getting place? Like right. he tells her these things, you know, like he's not being dishonest, which I really appreciate. Right. Like he, you know, I do really love the banter back and forth between Carla Jean and Lou. Yeah. It's yeah. great. Um, I also, um, they were talking about filming that scene and how they just kind of couldn't get it right the first couple times. And then they decided to not look at each other, like straight ahead, oh. like, oh, because that's how like couples really talk to each right, other. Right. Yeah. Like they're not looking at each other. Yeah. <laughs> like, they're like walking past each yeah, other. Yeah. He's like, watching TV. He's cracking open a beer. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, it just adds so much comedy to that, which it goes to my next point is like, this movie's hilarious. Like, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and the book isn't so funny, but this movie's hilarious. And one of the things that kind of like made me laugh is when Shigur's looking at the floor plans to the hotel. Oh, like yeah. the first Lou Allen does it, and right. she's like that one has a double bed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the clerk, yeah, at the yeah. hotel. Like she makes me laugh every time. Yeah. yeah. And then you get the cutaway, and it cuts away to Shigur. It's like a two second like shot, and he's just like staring at the map. And it's just, it's funny. There's it's really no funny. dialogue exchange. Yeah, exactly. Scene, but you know that she's given him the same business <laughs> yeah. that she gave Llewellyn. She's like hassling you know? him just as much as she's hassling Llewellyn. Well, it's got two double beds. <laughs> yeah. Which I think is really funny. Yeah. Um, a couple other things. And this one's kind of a big one for me because it's like bothers me and will continue to bother me. But the, there's a floor missing. The, the joke the yeah. yeah i don't get it okay like, I, what is what i don't know yeah. i like i i i but it seems meaningful right it don't, does like, i don't yeah i don't know I, don't get it. I have no idea like i've looked into this like i've yeah. and this is not the first time like i've done it like on a whim where i'll be like sitting here watching the movie and like what what right. what like maybe somebody came up with it and maybe it'll be on the internet today but no not since 2007 have have i got an answer to that and what? i would who is that actor, by the way, who plays that role? The the that kind of like businessman. Oh, Stephen Root. Stephen Root. Yeah, okay. yeah, he's all over the place. Yeah, yeah. he's I think most notably Milton from The Office. Or not The Office. Oh, office Space. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The with his red stapler. stapler. Yeah, the swing line. Yeah, he's in a ton of stuff. He's a great character actor. Mm. And the last thing is, uh, Carla Jean's yeah, Carla Jean's dream, which I really love. Um, in the book, she talks about how she had a dream that she would meet. Llewellyn, do you remember this? No, no. Like she has, she has, she has a premonition. Like I'm gonna meet this guy one day. She's like, and I waited for him, and I waited for him, and when he walked in, like I knew immediately that was him. You know, oh, wow. and I thought like it was like really sweet, but it's like speaks to like these these uh this ideal that she had. Yeah, this like, ideal, but also like fate. You know. Yeah. And like I think this movie talks a lot about fate, which we didn't get into. We probably could have, but this movie does definitely like talk about fate and more so like that we're all like headed to death, which like as much as that, like that is fate, you know? <laughs> right. Right. Well, I mean like, um, I can't remember what book it is. I think it's the crossing. Uh huh. Cormac McCarthy's the crossing. Yeah. Um, he talks, death is huge. Like he, and, and, and fate is a big thing. Like he talks about, you know, like, people being accomplices in their own death to the extent that they put one foot before the other. Yeah. You know, like as long as you're putting one foot before the other, you are you're an walking accomplice. Toward it. You're an accomplice yeah. to your own death. Yeah. Which is a crazy thing. Which made think me think about. I kind of had this question, like is it's death inherently violent? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, is it, is it a violent thing just to die? I don't, I don't know. I don't think so. Right. Like by definition violence, you know what I mean? But it, it kind of like feels that way in this movie, you know, yeah, like, yeah. like death is violence to your life. You know, like life is so precious that death is violence. Right. Um, and I think that's kind of like the undertone here, especially when it comes to like Carla Jean. I really hate that she died. Yeah. That's, that's <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I think that about wraps it up. You have any final thoughts? Um, how about Angel Flatten a Man? Age of Flattened Man, which is yeah. a really great line from the movie. Um, Ed Tom Bell is kind of like looking at the burning car and he just like kind of pieces together what happened. And Wendell's like really like impressed. That's He's like, linear. that's very, very linear. And he's yeah. like, well, Age of Flattened Man. Right, right. And like, I, I bring it up because one, that's kind of like, 
in terms of style, I think I thought like Cormac McCarthy kind of like flattened his style. Mm-hmm. And it's funny because he didn't write this in the book, but I think the Coens kind of like saw this, you know, like they yeah. like, we get you. Like that's how I know that there's like this synergy between like these creators, you know, it's like, that's kind of like the idea. And it's, it's just like summed up so well in that line, you know? Yeah. That's what I'm, that's what I tried to get at earlier. And where I've got this intuition of this, like, it's baked into the movie, you mm-hmm. know, the fact that they're like taking from this other creator and, and also from other, like they're, they're paying homage to their earlier works, you know, and it's, that's all like baked into the movie yeah, as a theme, mm-hmm. you know, which is just really, really cool. Yeah. I'm sure they probably related in ways that we're probably not comfortable with. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, um, yeah, I'd rec- recommend this movie to anyone. Yeah, it's basically. But fantastic. like everyone knows what it is. It mm-hmm. won Best Picture that year. It's a surprise, and that's why I wanted to start with this. And uh, hopefully, we get to do another one of these together. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, how about we listen to that opening monologue just for kicks? The crime you see now, it's hard to even take its measure. It's not that I'm afraid of it. I always knew you had to be willing to die to even do this job. But I don't want to push my chips forward and go out and meet something I don't understand. A man would have to put his soul at hazard. He'd have to say, okay. I'll be part of this world. That was our conversation about No Country for Old Men. Thank you for listening. The voices you heard today was Sierra Gonzalez, myself, and my friend Patrick Kelly. In today's episode, I referred to Richard Linklater's Before series as the Beyond series. Forgive this, I assure you I know better. Follow us on Instagram. Just type in Film Slobbery. That's F-I-L-M-S-L-O-B-B-E-R-Y. Please subscribe and rate us on our show page wherever you listen. Feel free to share encouragement or disappointment or tell us what to do next. Next week's conversation is about Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles from 1990, if you'd like to follow along. Music at the top and what you're listening to right now was composed and recorded by Randy Flores. I'll just let you ride that out now. We'll see you next time.